Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Let's talk about bread for a minute. You like bread? Bread's good, right? You go to a place like O'Charlie's, the first thing I tell them when we go to O'Charlie's is, is the, I ask, is the bread working, bread machine working today? Yes, it is. Okay, just put your track shoes on, just make sure there's bread on this table, okay? We're going to eat the bread, because we love the bread. Um, here, I don't know a whole lot. How many of you make bread? Anybody here make bread? Oh, there are more hands in this one than in the first one, um, which surprises me a little bit, to be honest with you. I don't know a whole lot about making bread. I know a lot about eating bread. Um, I know this. I know that you, I, I, know how to, I know it smells good. I know it has to rise. I know that you, you, I know that you can bake bread with yeast in it, and you can bake bread without yeast, and the, when you put yeast in it, it makes it fluffy and nice and good and when you don't put yeast in it it's more like a matzah cracker type thing kind of like what you just enjoyed um you know that feast that we just put in front of you that little cracker and 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 i know that it doesn't take a whole lot of yeast to do the trick in a big batch of dough it just takes a little bit and that little bit of yeast works its way through the whole thing and and the next thing you know bread is rising and and you know all is right in the world because bread's a wonderful thing especially when it's soaked in butter I want to look this morning at a, at a time in the life of Jesus, about six to ten months before the crucifixion. He is on the Sea of Galilee. We call it a sea. It's probably, you know, probably a big lake would be a better term for it. Um, this is a body of water that's about 33 miles. If you walked all the way around, it'd take about 33 miles to do that. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's about 13 miles tall about eight miles wide at its widest point. It's not perfectly round, and it's kind of got a, an oval kind of shape to it. Um, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, and he's making his way across. These are guys that he has called to commit themselves to apprenticeship with him. They'd left their homes, left their jobs. They, they've left families, things that are precious to them. They've gotten in this boat with Jesus. They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and along the way, Across the way, Jesus issues a warning to them. Now, I want you to go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and, and I'm going to get there in just a minute, but before I do, I'm going to stop at, at Mark 8 in just a minute and read a passage to you. Jesus has all kinds of imagery available to him. You know, he's talking to these guys. He could have, he could have, he could have had the hillside. He could have, you know, been other boats on the water. He could have talked about water. He could have looked at the orchards on the shore. There's all kinds of things he could have used as imagery. Jesus settles in on this idea of yeast. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, they're crossing the lake, they're in a boat with Jesus, and Jesus makes this statement, and I don't know that I've ever heard, a, until recently, I had not ever heard a sermon preached on the, the yeast on this passage. Uh, Mark eight fifteen. he says this to the disciples. They're in this boat, and he says this, Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So you guys watch out. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Now, it is not an unreasonable question for you to hear me read that passage and for you to say to yourself, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What in the world does that mean? Yeast of the... See, and, and you might even be tempted to say, Brett, this is exactly why I don't read the Bible, because I read things like that, and I don't know what that means. Be careful. Be, watch out. What does he mean when he's talking about yeast? Why didn't he just say, watch out for the Pharisees? Why didn't he just say, watch out for Herod? They would have gotten that. 
I think it's because he's talking about a way of life here. He's talking about a way of thinking. He's talking about a way of relating to other people. It's possible that he's talking here about a way of life that gets sprinkled in like yeast does. And you know how yeast moves throughout the whole batch of dough. These things can make their way into your life and work their way through your life. And the next thing you know, your life has changed and you're a different person and you're doing things a different way. Jesus is saying, hey, don't let that happen to you. I need you to follow my way. And my way is different than the way of the Pharisees. And my way is different than the way of Herod. Don't let that yeast infect you. We looked last week at the calling of Peter and Andrew, two guys that were casting their nets into water, and he calls them to leave that and to follow, and they do. And then we said last week that Jesus would say, you don't follow me to get where you're going, you follow me to get where I'm going. I think what happens a lot of times is we kind of come along, we're going to follow Jesus, and it's like, Jesus, you just get in line with my deal and we'll be fine. And Jesus says, no. No, I'm going here. If you're going to follow me, we're going here. We're not going to your place. We're going to my place. And, and if we're totally honest sometimes in our Christian life, there's, there's a little bit of that in us, I think, where we, you know, we are following Jesus to get where we're going, not necessarily following Jesus to get where he's going. And Jesus says, my way is not your way. You see, all of us have a way. We all have a way of relating, of processing, of functioning and doing life and Oftentimes, we just invite Jesus in to do our deal, to have our agenda and do it our way and our process and our plan. And Jesus, I invite you into that. If you'll just come in and help me with my deal, it's all going to go great. Here's a thought. What if we don't invite Jesus into our life? What if Jesus invites us into his? What if Jesus says, I need you to leave your nets behind? Don't follow me to get where you're going follow me to get where i'm going and the trauma is not merely in the following it's also the leaving that's very hard sometimes jesus calls us and the the things he calls us to he says you're not going to need that you just need to leave that behind you're not going to need that and and sometimes that leaving is very difficult for us these words beware the yeast of the pharisees beware the yeast of herod they aren't just for the disciples they echo down to us what if What if Jesus is asking us, telling us, as followers of his, to leave other ways? This yeast of the Pharisees. Let's just ask a question. What in the world might Jesus have been talking about when he uses this phrase, yeast of the Pharisees? Let's go back basically to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, there are several encounters that we're going to see that will kind of give us a peek at, at... what Jesus means. We're going to look at three encounters this morning of Jesus with the Pharisees that we're going to learn an awful lot about him. That'll um, help us to understand what, he's, what he means when he says yeast of the Pharisees. The, the first encounter is about who you hang out with and who you don't hang out with. That's the first one. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went outside, out beside the lake, the, the Sea of Galilee, A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi. So you get this picture of Jesus kind of walking and and talking to the disciples and teaching maybe, and and then they're just kind of following. I don't know. I doubt they took notes, but they're listening to what he has to say. And he might be looking at the sea. Who knows what kind of things he's teaching. But he comes upon this guy named Levi that we come to know in the Bible as Matthew. 
As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. There's a pattern here. We saw it last week. Jesus is walking along. He runs up on this guy, and he says, hey, follow me. And that guy drops his nets, and he follows Jesus. A little bit later, Jesus comes up on some other fishermen. He says, follow me. The guy just leaves his nets and starts to follow Jesus. And when we see it today, he comes upon Levi. Levi, won't you follow me? And the Bible says that Levi followed Jesus. And this guy was a tax collector. Here's what you need to know about tax collectors in the first century. They were hated. Nobody liked them. You know, when I say the words, when I, I, can, I can say three letters to you, and unless you work for them, you probably don't like them. I-R-S. Right? You hear that, and you go, <clears throat> April 15th. I hate April 15th. That's kind of how they looked at Levi, only way, way, way worse. Because here's the problem. Levi was Jewish, and he had basically become a traitor and had gone to work for Rome and was collecting taxes for Rome. See, if you're trying to make a living, you've got a small business, you're a fisherman or a leather worker or iron worker, and you pay your temple taxes like a good Jew would, and you're taking care of your family, and you've got to buy supplies for all your business stuff to service customers, and then Rome comes and says, we need a tax from you as well because we've got to fund the Roman war machine, and you're going to have to pay us too. And this was a back-breaking tax on the Jewish people. And Levi, basically, Matthew, this guy has gone and he's become a tax collector for Rome. He's basically turned his back on his brothers and said, I want the money. And he was hated. And so that night, the Bible says Matthew has a dinner at his house. This guy named Levi has a dinner at his house and he invites all of his friends to come to the party. Now here's what you know. The disciples, when they see Jesus hang, wanting to hang out with this guy named Matthew, who's a tax collector, they're like, oh, Jesus, you have got to be kidding me. We are not going to hang out with this guy, are we? Please tell me. We're not going to be messing around with Matthew. But he is. And so it stands to reason that if Matthew's going to have his friends over at his house, you're probably not going to like them either. Now, I go home about three or four times a year and get a chance to see my little brother, and I love him dearly, but you've got to know my little brother and I are not anything alike, okay? And my little brother's friends and I are nothing alike. <laughs> nothing alike. But I love them. They are different. They're, they're, they, they do things that I wouldn't do. They talk in ways I wouldn't talk. I absolutely love going to my brother's back porch when he is surrounded by his friends. I love it. It's like a it's like just a, a harvest field for me. You know, I'm like, oh, look at all this. But they're different. And so Matthew is, is hanging out with his buddies. He's got this party going on. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house with Matthew, this guy named Matthew and all of his buddies. Now, when you go to a restaurant, they bring you silverware. They bring you a cup or a glass and you have your own bowl and your own dish, right? You sit on one end of the table, someone else sits on the other, and you have a dignified conversation back and forth across the table. You need to get that picture out of your mind when you think about them eating together, okay? Middle East, first century, would have been like this. There would be a community bowl. They would have fixed some meal in this bowl, and they would have handed you a piece of bread, and you would use that bread, and you would all dip, double dip now. See... <laughs> 
We're so advanced in the 21st century. You know, we've gotten so far that they double-dipped in the first century. My kind of people, actually, to be honest with you. You know, they, they would take their bread and they would dip it in and they would all eat from the same bowl and they would all be in very close proximity. So Jesus is literally dipping out of the same bowl with these disciples, which is or out with these uh, men that were friends with Matthew, which probably upset the disciples some, and as we see in a minute, greatly offended some other people. And the Pharisees are watching, and they're, they're just, they're baffled. They can't believe that Jesus is doing this with these other guys. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with, what is that word there? Sinners. Okay, now here's what I want you to see. There were sinners, and then tax collector got his whole other category. All right? That's how bad tax collectors were. They were like one step below sinners. So you got sinners who are here, and then you got tax collectors that nobody liked. And these Pharisees are like, you know, when they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked, I want you to notice who they asked. They go to Jesus' disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I want you to hear that question with a kind of a sense of confusing woundedness. Okay, kind of like, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, these are the people, this guy's, taxing us like crazy and breaking our backs we can't afford to feed our families because of this guy and jesus is hanging out with him you see with the pharisees you're either on the inside or you're on the outside there were not only clean foods and unclean foods but there were also clean people and unclean people and the pharisees made a big difference between those two you're either in or you're out it's either us or them you're clean or unclean The minute you proclaim one group in, you proclaim another group out, you are already setting yourself up on some level as being superior to everybody else. And Jesus says a crazy thing in response to the first question and the first encounter. On hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's calling himself a healer, not just of the body, but of the soul. He says, they know they need me. You don't even know you're sick. You need me, and you don't even know it. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. How do you get along with doctors? You do okay with doctors? When you start to get sick, you know, you get a little thing going on. Do you rush right out to the doctor? Or are you like me, and you say to yourself, that'll get better. That'll get better. You know, the next day it's like, <sighs> and you're saying, no, it'll get better. It really it's, it can't get worse because I feel horrible, but it's going to get better. And, you know, two weeks later, now you've got really nasty stuff happening, and you're like, I, you know, I don't think I'm getting better. I, I, I don't think my body's going to heal itself this time. I probably ought to go get some help. That's kind of how I am. I've got to really be feeling bad before I go to the doctor. And some of you are probably like me. We just think that our body's going to heal itself. See, Jesus is having this dinner with these people, and he's saying, these are people who understand they're not going to get better without me. And and I'm welcomed among them. He's looking at the Pharisees, and he's saying, you guys are sick, and you don't even know it. You think you're going to heal yourself. 
So he's dipping bread with this category of people who are unclean, and he's saying, look, they realize something that you don't realize. They're incapable of self-healing. And Jesus says, to come to me, you have to know that you need me. You have to know you're not going to get better on your own. So the first encounter, Jesus is a healer. The second encounter I want you to see has to do with fasting this morning. Fasting, this idea of going for extended periods of time without food. And some of the Pharisees fasted, not all of them, but some of them fasted two times a week. On Mondays and Thursdays from sun up to sundown, they would go every Tuesday, uh, Monday and Thursday and they, would, they wouldn't eat anything. And so Mark 2, verse 18, we read this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, I want you to hear the way this might have been asked, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, you know what this is? This happens in churches across America all the time. And I'm just going to tell you, I better never see it happen here. I do not want that to happen here. And if you are even the least bit inclined to behave in this way, you need to know I'll come off the top rope on you so hard because we just don't, we're, you know, we're very tolerant of a lot of things. I will not tolerate this idea of religious superiority because I've done something and God likes me better than he likes you. And I'm superior to you because I behave better than you. I'm superior to you because I pray more or I give more or I dress better or anything like that. That happens in churches all across this country. Doesn't happen in here. Because we understand we're all in need. This is spirituality through religion. And the better you, the better you, you behave and the better you think you are, you treat other people in a way that isn't good. And Jesus' response is very interesting. He says, here's why they're not fasting. The groom is here. <laughs> why would people eat why would, why would people go to a wedding where there's food and not eat? I was at a wedding reception last night. Food was tremendous. They showed me where the food line was. At, I, they only had, had to tell me that one time, okay? One time's all I needed. I knew exactly where the food was, how to get there. It was like, make a way. Verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? See, in the Old Testament and the Old Prophets, they said the kingdom is coming. Then we get to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says the kingdom is right around the corner. Then you get to Jesus, and Jesus says, Hey, the wedding is now. The groom is here. It's time to eat. Jesus says, I am healer. I am groom. And then he says something that in our culture, I don't know that we would necessarily get. He's, he's talking about wineskins. In Jesus' time in Galilee, when you killed an animal, you, killed every, you, you, you used every part of that animal. If you were going to kill a goat for your family for the meat and for the, uh, you know, if you, you'd use it obviously for the milk and then at some point you, you would kill it for meat, you would take that hide and you, they treated it somehow and they would make a wineskin out of that goat skin. Jesus says, you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Verse 22, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. 
See, new wine is still fermenting. New wine is still giving off gases. It's still expanding. You put new wine in a, in a wineskin that's old and brittle and has been around a long time, and, it, and that wine starts to give off gases, and pretty soon your, your wineskins are going to be ruined and your wine is going to be all over the place because the wineskin simply cannot hold it. And Jesus basically is saying, hey, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. In effect, what he's saying is, don't expect to fit me into your religious system. I don't fit into your system. These Pharisees had it all figured out, what you have to look like to look spiritual. And Jesus comes along and he says, not me and not my followers. Don't try to fit me into that. It's rigid, it's confined, it's locked in, there's no life in it. Your system can't hold me. Jesus says, I am healer. I am groom. A third encounter had to do with grain jesus and his disciples are walking one day and he's talking to them and as they're walking along they're walking past this wheat field and and you know they, they're walking along and they just all of a sudden gather up some stalks in their hand what you can do is when you get some stalks in your hand like that you can put them in your hand and you can rub them together and it separates the the actual wheat uh the kernel from the chaff and then you can blow the chaff away and what you have left are little kernels of wheat that you can put in your mouth and you can eat like a snack. This is obviously before Doritos. This would have been, this is first century Doritos is what this is, okay? They're walking along and they're just kind of gathering up and they rub them up in their hands and they, you know, they, they would eat them like that. That's what they're doing. Here's the problem. The day they're doing that is Saturday. Do you know what Saturday was in the first century? It was the Sabbath day. And people saw them eating these kernels of wheat on the Sabbath day. You say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is we were given the Ten Commandments, and in the Ten Commandments we're told not to, um, not to murder people and not to steal things and don't lie about somebody in court, and oh yeah, one day a week, take a day off. Just take a day off. And it's interesting that that, that particular commandment is in the Big Ten because it's a beautiful commandment it basically says you are more than what you earn you're more than what you do you're more than what you produce take some time off and instead of doing just be just take some time off it was a gift from god to us to just just relax just take it easy don't just don't don't tax your body on this day just take it easy the Sabbath would come on a Saturday after six days of work. You would work six days and then the sacred day. You would work six days and then a sacred day. If you were to look at a calendar, all the red circles would be on, this, on Saturday for them. And so from Saturday, from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, you didn't plow that day, you didn't, you didn't harvest that day, but when Jesus' disciples are grabbing this grain and harvesting it as a snack, they are accused of working. You don't plow on the Sabbath, and you don't harvest on the Sabbath. And they were accused of harvesting crops on the Sabbath day. Sounds silly, doesn't it? Encounter number three, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The problem with first century Phariseeism 
is that the day of freedom had been tied up with so many rules and so many regulations and so many things that you had to observe that the meaning of the day had been lost. It was supposed to be a day where you just went, Instead, everybody walked around all tense and crazy, hoping nobody saw them do something wrong. And they had weighed it down with so many rules, the Pharisees had, that they had choked the life right out of the day. The original tent had been completely lost. That's what religion does. Hear me clearly. That is what religion does. Religion kills things. At the end of this teaching, Jesus is going to say in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, I'm the boss of the Sabbath. I'm the boss. So encounter number one, I'm healer. Encounter number two, I am the groom. And encounter number three, he says, I am rest. I love this next passage in the Bible. This comes from Matthew 11, verse 28. I, the older I get, the more I like this passage. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest I tell people all the time if following Jesus if praying if spending time with God creates tension for you if you come to Christ and you spend time with Jesus talking to him and just being with him and you feel worse at the end of that something is wrong because when you come to Christ things should be lifted off of you not added to you when you come to Christ and you spend time with Jesus things should not necessarily doesn't mean life's going to be easier life may get harder but there will be peace that you otherwise didn't have and if that's not happening there's probably something wrong in that whole relationship I am healer, he says. I am groom. I am rest. Leave your nets and learn my way. But my way is different than the way of the Pharisees. It's not a way of you're in and you're out and there's some that are superior to others. Jesus is saying you've been bound up by the Sabbath for so long with, and, you, and you've, you've made it all about your moral stuff and being good enough and making it religious and all the obligations that it's a system that can't even breathe. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will give you life. Come to me, and I will give you bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus would say. Can I just state the obvious this morning? It is possible to come to church and not come to Jesus. And it is possible to find a home in the religious community and for Christ to not be able to make his home in you. It is possible to have a life of religious observance that does not get you acquainted with spiritual life. There are people today that are trying their best, knocking themselves out, beating themselves over the head, trying to impress God with some action or activity and they don't realize it is about coming before him and laying everything down and just saying I want to be in a relationship with you you don't come to Christianity and adopt Christianity you come to Jesus and Jesus adopts you and Jesus says, my way is so different than the way of the Pharisees. They're well-intentioned, they're devout, they, they're observant, but they're, they're, it's yeast. 
And he's in the boat with his disciples, and he says, look, you guys be careful. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Because if it gets sprinkled into your life, it's going to make its way into your whole life, and it'll ruin everything. And some of you right now are thinking, Brett, that's exactly right. I used to go to a church, and there were all kinds of rules, and there were all kinds of observances, but there wasn't any life with them, and it was you know, pretty picky stuff, and people were self-superior, and they thought themselves better than somebody else. And, and I just walked away from the entire system. And at that point, I would ask you, what did you walk away to? What did you walk away to? Because here's what happens. A lot of times people go to church, and they encounter that, and they just walk away, period. And to, some, to, some, to that question, what did you walk away to, some people might say, I make my own rules now. I'm my own boss. Well, welcome to the yeast of Herod. That's the yeast of Herod. If you asked Herod, who is your God? He would say, Herod is Herod's God. He would say, I make my own rules. Herod the Great came to power a generation before Jesus. Do you know how Herod came to power? By eliminating all of his rivals. Do you know what that means? means he killed anybody that was a threat to the throne even his own sons if he thought they had an eye on the throne he killed them Herod was called king of the Jews and and that's that was his title but he was fully conformed to the way of the Romans and the Greeks he was all about Roman Greece he's called Herod the Great because of his great building projects he's not called Herod the Great because of his great character He built a city on the coast. It was called Caesarea. It was in honor of Caesar, Caesarea. And when you came into the main harbor at Caesarea, the first thing you would see was this temple that he had built and constructed to to Caesar Augustus. It wasn't a, a, a monument like we have the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial or something like that. This was this was a, a, a temple. This was a place to worship. So you think about it, you sail into this place where the Bible has, the the Ten Commandments have been given, and one of them was you'll you'll have no other gods before me, you won't make any images and bow down to them, and you land in Caesarea, and the first thing you come upon is this big temple to Caesar Augustus, where if you went in there, they're sacrificing bulls and lambs and things in honor and worship of Caesar Augustus. So if you ask Herod, who is your God? He would reply, Augustus is my God. That's what he'd say out loud because he wants to impress the Romans. But if you were to get him in a private place and say, uh, Herod, who is your God? He would say, Herod is Herod's God. I do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. In Herod's senior years, he's an old guy and, and he's sick and some visitors come from the east and they say, hey, um, we've heard that there has been born a king of the Jews. And Herod would say, a king of the what? There was only one king of the Jews, and he was it. Well, they go off to Bethlehem. They're looking for this baby that's been born king of the Jews, and Herod sends an army to Bethlehem basically to kill every child under the age of two because he will have no rivals. And he's sick when he does that. He's pretty old, and eventually Herod passes away. His kingdom gets split up among his sons, Rome steps in and they take over the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is and the city of Caesarea and and they say we're going to rule this part on our own and they install a governor, a guy you've probably heard of, his name is Pontius Pilate. And then 
That means that one of Herod's sons, Antipas, who basically is ruling the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and the parts around that, he's lost his kingdom. He's lost his city. He's got to have a whole new headquarters. So he builds a city known as Tiberias in honor of Tiberius the ruler. You could have seen it from the Sea of Galilee. And so when Jesus said, you guys be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod, Tiberias was this city that, that Antipas has just built. They could probably see that city when he said it. And Antipas has the mindset of the Herods. Nobody tells me what to do. I make my own rules. One day, he was visiting his brother. Antipas is visiting his brother. I think his brother's name was Philip. I'm not sure about that. And he sees something at Philip's house that he really liked and decided he would take it to his house. It happened to be his brother's wife. And her name was Herodias. And he got her back to the palace. When he arrives back at the palace, John the Baptist gets wind of that. And John the Baptist starts to say, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Well, this ticks Antipas off. And it really makes Herodias mad. And she, you know, her basically, her attitude is, how dare you moralize against me? And how dare you tell me that something I've done is wrong? You don't, you know, like a two-year-old, you're not the boss of me. And she hates John the Baptist. We read a story in Mark chapter 6. Herod is having a party. He's got all of his friends there. The booze are flowing. It's this big blowout of a party. And all of a sudden, one of the things that happens is Herodias has a beautiful daughter, and she comes in, and she begins to dance for Antipas. This was not the chicken dance. Okay? It's not that kind of dance. Her dance greatly pleased Antipas, and as he watched her, he said, What do you want? What could I give you? I'll give you anything. Well, she runs off to her mother, and she says, Mama, Herod has, has promised to give me anything I want. What do I want? He, I could have cities. I could have a horse. I could have whatever. What do I want? And she said, You go back, and you tell him that you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So she does. She goes into Herod and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, he's got all of his friends around. They all heard him make a promise that she could have whatever she wanted. So now he's bound by it, and he's, in, in order to not look ridiculous and stupid and not to be embarrassed, he says, okay, you can have it. So they go, they take John the Baptist out of jail, they cut off his head, they put his head on a platter, and they deliver it to this young girl in the presence of the king and all these friends. And Jesus is in the boat, and he says, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of Herod. And you think, why in the world would, would Jesus have to mention, even mention Herod? Why would he even have to warn these guys about Herod? Because Herod killed, to some of these guys, their best friend, someone they were deeply devoted to. They can see Tiberius. They're all too well familiar with how powerful Antipas was why in the world would Jesus have to say beware of the yeast of Herod here's why because there is in every one of us a seed that says nobody tells me what to do nobody's the boss of me some of us really need to hear this today if you flee from a lifeless form of religion I would just tell you beware to what you flee be careful 
Be careful of fleeing from that to something that can be equally as damaging, and that is a mindset that says nobody's going to tell me what to do because that's dangerous as well. Some people walk away from lifeless forms of religion and say, you know what, those people at that church, they talk about giving and they talk about tithing and they talk, they talk about all that stuff, but they don't give with their heart. They don't, they don't give of their time. They don't, they're, not, they're, not, they're not generous with their words, their gossipy, their, you know, whatever criticism they may have. And they walk away from it. And, and I would say, really, when you walked away, did you walk away to become a follower of Jesus or did you walk away to become your own king? Did you just say, I'm done and I'm going to make my own rules now? Because if that's what you've ever done, what you've done is you've traded the yeast of the Pharisees for the yeast of Herod. And Jesus says, my way is completely different than either one of those. It's not somewhere in between the two. It's, com- it's totally other. Follow me and learn my way. If you flee the world of the Pharisees, be careful to what you flee. And keep- Jesus keeps whispering, just come to me. He mentions these two groups in the same sentence. They're, they're so far apart philosophically, and, and they're so different, the Pharisees and Herod. They're so different. And he says, beware the Pharisees. And then he says, beware, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of Herod. And you ask, what could these two groups possibly have in common? You want to know what they had in common? A common enemy. They hated Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 6 says this, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They're collaborating because Jesus is a threat to both of those ways. I want to end today with an illustration and a story. I want you to imagine with me a man who buys a house. And in this house, at one end of the house is this beautiful window. You can look out, and it opens up. It looks out onto a a mountainside it's just this gorgeous view. You can, see, you can see nature. You can see birds migrating in season. You can see snow-capped mountains. It's just this wonderful, beautiful um, scenery. It's so beautiful that if you were to turn your television on in this room, it would be sacrilegious because it couldn't even compete with the view you had out the window. And this guy that owns this house has the terrible judgment to ask a family that has kids to come to his house. And these kids come in and they, they're in the house for a little bit and they decide they want to go outside to let, and the parents are going to talk amongst themselves and these little kids are out running around outside. They decide they're ready to come inside so they put their hands up against this beautiful glass, their mouths, their little tongues. You know how little kids do. If you've raised kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, this owner of this house sees this and he's like, oh, you're killing me. He can't wait for the family to leave. And as soon as the family leaves, what does he do? He goes and gets in the cabinet. He gets the Windex. He gets the paper towels. He goes out and he begins to clean those smudges off so he's got a beautiful, crystal clear window to see his view. He goes to bed that night and something happens in the middle of the night. Birds have, a flock of birds have flown over and they do what birds are so able to do. It's like they can throw curveballs with their stuff, but I don't know how they do it. He he wakes up the next morning, and not only is it dirty on the bottom, it's also dirty on the top. So he goes and gets a ladder, he drags it out, and he's going to clean this window. 
The next day, the same thing. He drags out the ladder and he cleans the window. He does this for a week. He's so tired of cleaning the window. So eventually what he does is he constructs scaffolding in front of the window. He's just going to leave it up to make it easier for him to clean the window every single day. But what has he done? He's killed the view. He's killed the view. That is what the yeast of the Pharisees does. It kills this view. The law was never given to us to destroy a beautiful relationship with God. It was given to us so that we could see the beauty of God. And the Pharisees came and made all these rules around it and destroyed the view. So that's what it looks like from the Pharisees' perspective. Do you know what it looks like from Herod's perspective? Herod looks at the window and says, It's not dirty. So one guy constructs scaffolding to clean it all the time. The other guy never cleans it. And both of those guys destroy the view. Jesus tells a story of a guy in the Bible. It's one of my favorite stories. The son goes to his dad and asks him. He says, hey, could I have my inheritance? Dad gives him his inheritance. He goes off. He blows it. You know the story. Spends all of his money. He's there. He's feeding pigs. And he says, you know what? I'm out of money. I'm hungry. I'll go home. At least I'll be a servant in my dad's house. So he goes home. Jesus is telling the story. He says he sees him a long way off. The father sees him a long way off. He runs and he hugs him. He puts a robe around him. He puts rings on his finger. He says, let's have a party. Meanwhile, the older brother is out in the field at work. He hears a noise. He says, what's that noise? And the servant said, well, that's your dad. He's having a party for your brother. Your brother's come home. The older brother gets angry. He, what? I, I slave here every day. I work hard for my dad. He's never once thrown a party for me. The dad wants the son to come in and join in the party, and the, and the son says, no, if he wants to talk to me, he's going to have to come out here. I'm not going in there. The father goes out and is pleading with his son, come into the party. It strikes me that the Pharisee and the Herodian are both represented in this story. One is rebellious in his goodness. One is rebel is rebelling while being bad. But here's what you need to understand. They're both invited to the party. Jesus invites everybody to the party, but he says, listen, you got to follow my way. You can't be like the Pharisees, and you can't be like Herod. It's a totally different way. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, can I just invite you in a place that loves you dearly to just maybe for the first time in your life be honest and say, I am so tired of running. I am so tired of being stressed out. Come to Christ and let him take your burdens away. We're going to stand and sing in a minute. If you've never given your life to Christ, you can do that here. And you can know what life is. You can know peace. And you can know joy. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for living like Pharisees and forgive us for living like Herod. Following you is not easy. It requires a leaving. Father, we can't even follow you without your help. Everything we do requires your help. And so we very humbly come to you today and we tell you that we need you. Lord, we've probably seen ourselves in either one of these two people, the Pharisee or Herod. 
in either case, we stand in need of your forgiveness. So Father, would you come in now? Would you help us to follow your way, a different way, the right way? And Lord, if there's someone in this room who's never given their life to Christ, I pray that today would be the day that they finally understand who you really are. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.